This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here with my co-host, Jimmy Johnson, and we are excited to have Dewey Doval on the Covenant Podcast today, and our topic is going to be dismantling dispensationalism so dewey welcome to the podcast man i'm glad to be here with you guys thanks for having me yeah let's uh get this conversation rolling uh can you tell us and our audience just a little bit about yourself perhaps your ministry uh your life whatever whatever else you want to say absolutely well for starters uh, it's important to note uh, as most people from where i'm from would note that i'm from the great state of texas i'm a native texan I uh, was born in Amarillo, raised in Dallas, Fort Worth, um, and have been here uh, literally my entire life, uh, which has been 25 years. <laughs> I, um, I met my wife in Dallas, Fort Worth. We've been married for two and a half years. Um, in fact, it was only four months ago that I left Dallas, Fort Worth to take a pastoral role at First Baptist Church, Edna, which is located in Edna, Texas, about uh, an hour and a half southwest of Houston. Um, the pastor of youth education and discipleship. Uh, at First Baptist Church, Edna, and uh, I'm grateful that uh, the Lord has led me here uh, after several years of trying to just discern what God's call was on my life. I knew it was going to be in ministry, but didn't really have uh, clarity as to what it would look like, uh, whether it would be pastoral ministry um, or academic ministry of some capacity, because uh, I definitely had a desire to do both. Um, I have a baseball background, played college baseball, which helped me uh, get my Associate of Arts degree uh, from Western Texas College and my uh, Bachelor of Arts degree from the Master's University, completed the uh, Bachelor of Arts degree in Biblical Studies and was able to obtain that in 2017. And then since then, I uh, was able to obtain a Master of Arts degree in Biblical Studies from the Master's University as well. And Lord willing, will complete a uh, Master of Theology degree from Campbellsville University this spring, spring of 2021. Moving forward, uh, as far as long-term plans are concerned, I uh, would like to pursue a DMIN or a PhD down the road, uh, depending on what my ministry context looks like, will greatly determine which of those two avenues that I pursue. As I'm sure both of you men are aware, uh, my, my ultimate burden is uh, for the local church, and I'm sure that y'all share that conviction as well. So any any um, education that I get from here on out, I pray that is, is for the edification of God's people in the local church. And, um, you know, I'm just excited to see what the Lord has in store moving forward, both in vocational ministry and in any academic uh, endeavors that I pursue in the years to come. Amen. Thank you for that introduction. Um, Dewey, you are 
not only a regular contributor to our, our blog, but you are the one who contributes the most. You've contributed articles on Federal Vision, as well as Devotions, and, and also John Gill. And your latest series is titled Dismantling Dispensationalism. And, and that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. So to start us off on the subject, can you define dispensationalism for us? Yes, that's that's a great question. And unfortunately, uh, it's not necessarily easy to answer, as I've discovered uh, just from my own education experience, my own experience in a dispensational church. And even just as I've continued to go through the process of preparing um, my most recent article on the historical origins of dispensationalism uh, and then just trying to formulate this series, um, it's, it's really difficult to answer that question. I'll do my best to, to kind of give the broader macro um components that contribute to forming the definition, and then I'll give y'all what I think should be the most uh, helpful or most accurate definition of dispensationalism. Um, it's important to note that there's not a one-size-fits-all or a monolithic uh, understanding or definition that you could probably label on dispensationalism, because there's just so many different varieties that you're going to run into. Um, I think that if we're going to seek to answer what is a dispensationalist or what is dispensationalism in a way that honors the Lord and in a way that shows charity to our Christian uh, brethren that hold to dispensationalism. We need to do our very best to take them on their own terms, not use straw men, not, um, you know, misrepresent in any way. Although that's, you know, it's, it's easy to do that and it can be tempting to do that. And there's a lot of stuff that have been written about dispensationalism that unfortunately, uh, does not represent them in the most appropriate light, uh, particularly those who we would affirm wholeheartedly as stalwarts for the gospel and stalwarts for biblical orthodoxy. With that said, though, um, I want to start at a macro level. There's three uh, distinct observable classifications of dispensationalism that have been provided throughout the past um, 200 years, more or less, you could say. Um, you have classical traditional dispensationalism, which is your John Nelson Darby type. Uh, and that existed really from its origins in the early part of the 19th century on into the middle of the 20th century. So you're looking at somewhere between 1830 and 1950 as your range for that particular view. Um, as I pointed out in the most recent article that I wrote, uh, there are several distinctives about that realm of dispensationalism that differentiates it between revised and progressive. So I, I won't get into too many of the details for the sake of the time of this podcast. would encourage the listener to go and read that because I really get into some of the weeds about um, that particular brand of dispensationalism and the other two historically observable classifications. But you've got your classic traditional dispensationalism, 1830 to 1950, revised dispensationalism, which is 1950 to 1985. Um, that's kind of more of your Charles Ryrie um, John Walvoord, John MacArthur, even I would classify as closer to revised dispensationalism than uh, the third category, which is progressive dispensationalism. And that really came about in uh, the 1980s and, and really from your serious academic uh, theologians in dispensational camps. That's what they're going to be representative of. And I think to be fair, if I'm going to I'm going to give a, de a definition of dispensationalism. If I'm really going to interact in this series with uh, dispensational theologians, I want to interact with what is being presented today as their preferred um, identification, if you will, as their as their preferred 
uh, classification of their viewpoints. And one of the most vocal dispensationalists today in the academic realm and who's influencing a lot of pastors today, uh, they're reading his books, is uh, Dr. Michael Vlock of the Master's Seminary. Uh, Dr. Vlock has written several lengthy articles. Uh, he's written uh, several books on dispensationalism. Uh, one of which I cited extensively in our most recent installment of this series, uh, his book titled Dispensationalism, Essential Beliefs and Common Myths, I think gives us the six central uh, components or characteristics of how I would define a dispensationalist today on their own terms. And um, this is the definition that I'm going to be working with predominantly through this series. And I would encourage the listener uh, to look into some of the work that Dr. Vlock has done. Uh, echoes a lot of what Robert Saucy um, and, and men like that, uh, Daryl uh, Bach at Dallas Theological Seminary, another progressive dispensationalist that kind of echoes what uh, Dr. Vlock says in his book. But Dr. Vlock, interesting to note, he says that if you disagree on any of these six beliefs, then he would not say that you could identify as a dispensationalist. So he kind of lumps even all three categories under this umbrella. So with that in mind, I think these six um, components are very helpful for us in our consideration of what is a dispensationalist. Let me just read those for the listener, and you guys can ask any follow-up as necessary. So number one, the primary meaning of any Bible passage is found in that passage. The New Testament does not transcend Old Testament passages in a way that overrides or cancels the original authorial intent of the Old Testament writers. Second, Types exist in the Bible, but national Israel is not an inferior type that is superseded by the church. Third, Israel and the church are distinct entities. The church is not to be regarded or identified as the new and or true Israel. Fourth, while there is spiritual unity and salvation between Jews and Gentiles, there is still a unique future role for Israel as a nation in God's eschatological purposes. Fifth, the nation of Israel will be both saved and restored with a unique functional element in a future earthly millennial kingdom. And lastly, number six, because there are multiple senses of seed of Abraham, the church's identification as seed of Abraham does not cancel God's promises to the believing Jewish seed of Abraham. So again, we can get into some of the uh, weeds of, of those six um, the distinctives, if you will, of, of what dispensationalism, I would say, should be defined as and regarded as today, at least by serious um, uh, critics or, or those who want to interact with dispensationalists, uh, the best of what dispensationalism has to offer. There are certainly others, I'm sure, plenty uh, classical dispensationalists still out there, revised, modified dispensationalists still out there. In fact, if, uh, when I was back at the Master's University, it was pretty much a mixed bag between that revised uh, version of dispensationalism and the progressive version of dispensationalism. But nonetheless, I think I think if we're going to be as fair as we can be and just in light of the interactions that I have on Twitter uh, from those who identify as dispensationalists, I think giving Vlock's definition, there's a good place to start. Yeah, and we can get into some of those uh, six distinctives in a moment that you mentioned from Vlock. Uh, but before we do that, let's uh, talk a little bit about you and your theological journey out of dispensationalism. You have recently contributed an article to the Covenant Confessions blog where you discuss your journey out. So 
Um, can you give uh, your journey to our audience? And then after you do so, um, perhaps talk about your plan in the future and where you uh, intend to go with some of your forthcoming articles. Absolutely. So uh, growing up, I was uh, heavily involved with baseball, uh, made very little time for church or anything related to Christianity as an individual. Uh, my parents identified as Christians, and I would have identified as Christian as well. I profess faith in Christ from a very young age, but I myself was not saved until my senior year of high school, towards the middle part of my senior year of high school. So really, my profession of faith uh, throughout the entirety of my adolescence leading up to basically the age of 17 going on 18 was simply out of a desire to please my parents and really out of a desire to identify with kind of the, nor the normal thing to do uh, as, a, as an athlete living in, in, the, in the South and the Bible Belt. And, um, you know, I, I truly throughout really even after making a profession of faith, going through my uh, first 18 years of life, I had absolutely no theological identification or convictions whatsoever. Uh, I got to college, and during my freshman year of college, I had the opportunity to be mentored by uh, the Baptist Student Ministry Director, uh, who would later actually baptize me as a believer, and uh, made a good relationship with him. I'm still very close to him to this day. Uh, he was Arminian, and his soteriology did not hold to um, Reformed theology, covenant theology, or anything like that. Uh, would would have identified probably as a uh, revised or modified dispensationalist, but really didn't get into any of that uh, during his time of discipling me. Really, just tried to teach me the basics, you know, of the of the doctrine of um, you know Scripture and God and the gospel, and just very basic things that you would want to train a new believer in without getting into too many of the uh, more academic or highly theological things. So my first two years of college. Really, um, Billy Graham was my go-to for sermons. Anything that Billy Graham said or uh, wrote, uh, that was pretty much my, that was the extent of my theology, which, you know, I uh, love Billy Graham. He did a lot of great things for the Lord. Um, also was not perfect uh, in light of the, the Robert Schuler interviews, but, um, you know, he, he was not a deep theologian, um, you know, and, and he, although he was instrumental in me uh, loving the Lord and, and, and wanting to share my faith with other people, um, I was not in any way, shape, or form well-versed in theology of any kind going into the master's university. So at, so at 20 years old, the spring semester of 2015, I enrolled on a baseball scholarship to the master's university. And for the first time in my life, I, I was exposed to expository preaching. Uh, I, t I attended Grace Community Church um, every week. I sat under MacArthur's teaching and Austin Duncan's teaching and Sunday school. I went to a Fundamentals of the Faith class at Grace Community Church every week as well to, to kind of uh, further supplement the things that I had learned under my first mentor uh, at community college. And of course, just by virtue of going to class and by virtue of being involved with other teammates and people in the dorm, I was exposed to kind of a, um, a revised, modified dispensationalism uh, and maybe even a little bit of progressive dispensationalism, but just... Uh, full disclosure, in my personal opinion, uh, the dispensationalism of Dr. Vlock is is much more refined and much more, I would even say, biblical than um, the dispensationalism that I received from several of my professors and that even my roommate had embraced at, um, at the Master's University. And, and funny story, uh, he's one of my best friends today. 
Uh, but before I left, uh, I had gotten injured and the, the reader or the listener can go back and, and read my first article that explains all this. But I got hurt and had made the, de- the decision to move back home and start working so I could save up money for seminary. And he told me as I was you know, packing my bags and getting ready to leave, he said, you stay strong in your dispensationalism. Uh, and, you know, he was he was as firmly committed to it as anyone. Well, today he's an ordained minister in the uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. And uh, he couldn't he couldn't be any further away from dispensationalism some five, six years later. Um, and he's not even a Baptist anymore at that. So just kind of funny. You know, I, that, that was the culture, though. I revised, modified dispensationalism. I moved back home. Uh, I was a MacArthurite. I've used that term before. I don't use it uh, pejoratively. I love Dr. MacArthur. I've had the chance to have some conversations with him, share a meal with him. Uh, he's a godly man. I just don't agree with him on everything theologically, but there's a lot that can be gleaned from him. But um, I was I was staunch, you know, a leaky dispensationalist and um, didn't really uh, exercise any discernment by going and checking uh, what men like R.C. Sproul uh, held to uh, just, uh, you know, the, the all-millennial, post-millennial, even historic pre-millennial view was always uh, told. They, actually, they were they were always classified to me as uh, allegorizing scripture, um, you know, spiritualizing scripture and even compromising, you know, kind of being theologically liberal in a way. And as the as the listener will know, if they go back and listen to my or go back and read my first um my first article in the Dismantling Dispensationalism series, they'll see that when I actually did my homework and I actually started to to look into some of these people who were characterized as being compromisers and, and allegorizing scripture, it wasn't long before I started to, to find some, some inconsistencies with um, the things that I had been taught and told at the Master's University and before long, uh, 2017, I was questioning my uh, dispensationalism, certainly uh, did not believe that a rigid distinction needed to be made between an eschatological future for the nation of Israel that excluded the church in many ways or didn't focus on the church in many ways. And then the church, of course, having its unique eschatological purposes and journey. So, um, you know, I was flirting with historic premillennialism by 2017, because again, when you're told for two, three years that if you don't see a thousand years as meaning a thousand years, then, you know, you're, you're, you're being a theological liberal, you're spiritualizing the text. And if you take that approach to the book of revelation, then how on earth could you affirm a young earth, you know, and and that there was all kinds of, of stuff going on in my mind that uh, I I can't depart premillennialism, but I certainly can't affirm a preacher of rapture and other things that we can get into later. But um, fast forward from 2017 to the beginning of 2019, uh, I met uh, Jake Stone through social media. I know you all uh, had a lot of interaction with him, and I know he's been a, a great blessing to Covenant Confessions. And we started talking about um, 1689 federalism, and I started uh, getting exposed to some of y'all's resources, and I started to uh, read the works of Sam Renahan uh, and Richard Barcelos, and uh, you know, it was only a matter of time before uh, I, I had completely abandoned anything related to dispensationalism, and would today identify. Uh, as a as a 1689 Federalist or as a particular Baptist. So um, that's kind of my journey uh, out of dispensationalism. That's the abridged version. Uh, the listener can go and read the lengthy version on the website, uh, the Covenant Confessions website. As far as what I'm trying to accomplish in this series, you know, why write dismantling dispensationalism? What's the what's the end goal? Well, um, 
I think there's a lot of people out there that identify as dispensationalists because that's just the way they've always been taught. Uh, there's an assumption within the church today that there's going, there's just going to be a pre-tribulation rapture, a seven-year uh, tribulation period, an antichrist literal figure on the earth. Uh, there'll be a 1,000-year reign of Christ. Some say there's going to be rebuilt temple and renewed uh, sacrificial system, uh, and, and there's all kinds of debate out there. And frankly, you know, I, I can relate to the to the people out there who just simply are not aware of ulterior, or I should say, alternative ways of reading the scripture. And I just want to I just want to start a conversation. Frankly, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not a controversial or, or a controversial person or a guy who enjoys conflict with others. Um, I, I'm a guy that would rather, you know, uh, have a meal and get to know uh, somebody that I disagree with and, and have a conversation one on one than have a big elaborate debate. But in any case, I recognize that this is an important issue. It's not a salvation issue per se, uh, unless you say that there's multiple ways of salvation, uh, as, as some classical dispensationalists have done. But in any case, for most dispensationalists today, it's not a salvation issue. It's just about how can we most faithfully interpret scripture in keeping with the apostolic model we've seen in the New Testament and in keeping with the history of interpretation that has arisen throughout church history. So we're through the first two installments as of today. So we've done uh, my personal journey out of dispensationalism. I have examined the historical origins of dispensationalism. The next installment will probably be, it might be the most important installment of the entire series. Uh, I'm going to examine the hermeneutics of dispensationalism in comparison with, um, you know, your your 1689 uh, hermeneutic and even your uh, PNR, your Presbyterian Reformed hermeneutic, which I would even say, and I'll touch on this in the article, is um, is, is not too far off from the dispensational hermeneutic. Uh, but in any case, um, I want to show in that installment that, um, you know, it's inconsistent to to model a dispensational hermeneutic if you're going to affirm something like the doctrine of the Trinity, which requires New Testament interpretive priority. Um, so really my thesis for, for the third article is I want to show that dispensationalists reject New Testament interpretive priority in theory, but they arbitrarily embrace one in practice. And I'm going to take a look at the rigid literal grammatical historical hermeneutic in that article. And, and evaluate that against some of the alternatives out there. Um, part four, we're going to look at dispensational, uh, dispensationalism's covenant theology. Um, they absolutely reject uh, the idea of a covenant of redemption works and grace, even if you read uh, MacArthur's biblical doctrine textbook. And in keeping with what I learned at my former church that I was a member of, uh, they, they fundamentally reject this idea of covenant of works, covenant of grace, and covenant of redemption. They might affirm similar concepts. They'll, they'll use terms like intra-Trinitarian council, or they'll use terms like representative headship, uh, and they won't even do anything regarding covenant of grace. But they, they, what they do is they try to make sense of some of the, some of the um, categories and some of the uh, concepts that have been developed throughout church history, but they don't want to use the terminology with them because if they do, it, it's going to require them to do some serious revisit, uh, revision work on their dispensational convictions as a whole. Um, you know, you'll hear things like the word covenant's not even mentioned in Genesis till the Noahic covenant. You know, uh, why? Why would you affirm a covenant of works? And you say, well, what about Hosea 6, 7? And, um, you know, uh, the word covenant's not in 2 Samuel 
7 with the Davidic covenant, but it's called a covenant in Psalm 89. So, you know, there's there's many places you can go to to show inconsistencies with that that I look forward to doing in writing. I also want to highlight in that article the anti-confessionalism of the dispensationalism movement as a whole. Dispensationalists, I praise God for their commitment to Scripture, but they are typically erring on the, or erring on the side of biblicism. And by biblicism, I mean we're not allowed to use any, uh, you know, or if we use terms not found in the Bible, we have to be very, very careful. We can't just, you know, say things like covenant of works, covenant of grace, um, you know, because those aren't really biblical terms and they're confusing. And again, with as much love and grace as I can muster, if, if we're going to use something like the word Trinity or any extra biblical term, uh, we shouldn't exclude any other terms as long as they're biblical and historical um, and, and theologically accurate. So I want to point that out in part four, part five, uh, the two peoples of God theory. This isn't so much an issue in progressive dispensationalism. It's still kind of there. Again, there's still that rigid distinction between Israel and the church, but even in revised dispensationalism and in classical traditional dispensationalism, you have a distinct um, split or division between Israel and the church. That is the nation of Israel. The church fleshes itself out in how you understand the millennium, particularly that's the crown jewel of dispensational theology. We'll get into that. Um, part six, the dispensationalism's two rapture theory. I know we'll talk about that later in our conversation, uh, but not recognizing that if you affirm a pre-trib rapture, you're basically saying there's two returns of Christ. There's a return uh, when he gathers his people in the air to take to heaven for seven years. And then, uh, you know, there's another gathering in the air when he descends with his people um, to, to, you know, to set up the millennial kingdom. And, um, you know, the, the other problem that I see with uh, this idea of a two rapture theory um, is that it, it, it fundamentally uh, entails a, a, um, a reading into 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, something that has never been there in the history of the church. Um, this gets back into some of the problems I mentioned in part two of the series. Uh, when, we, when, we, when we engage in the uh, discipline of biblical interpretation, um, we need to make sure we're not coming up with ideas that were never around for you know, hundreds or thousands of years. Um, you know, just today, uh, you know, I, I got into uh, some discussion on social media with, with a dispensationalist saying, you know, dispensationalists point back to the patristic era for, um, you know, for their their basis of beliefs. And um, I, I don't understand why there's so much uh, attempts made in our day to, to try to trace things back to the patristic era that just simply weren't there um, hundreds or thousands of years ago uh, in the history of the church. But now in 19 you know, in the 19th, uh, 20th and 21st century, all of a sudden uh, we're, we're grasping at straws there. So they're trying to justify, um, you know, trying to have continuity with earlier portions of uh, redemptive history, particularly church history, to justify their views on things like the two rapture theory, which they probably wouldn't like that term. But that's the one I'm going to use. Um, part seven is the gap theory of dispensationalism. Um, the, the, the Daniel nine prophecy, and that's a hard prophecy to interpret. Uh, but the uh, 70th week of Daniel nine has remained unfulfilled in dispensationalism for the past 2000 years. Uh, dispensationalists are some of the most staunch, uh, advocates, at least today against, um, any kind of gap theory in creation or old earth theory of creation. 
but they have a gaping, uh, no pun intended, they have a gaping hole in their system by virtue of affirming a gap, as it were, between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel. So we'll get into that. And really, again, in some of these difficult places, I don't want to be dogmatic on some of these things because there are great minds who disagree, but there are more historically and exegetically compelling arguments that can be had by um, by holding to some different views than what dispensationalists have, have created in the last 100 years or so. Um, part eight, the future golden age of dispensationalism. It's going to be the thousand year reign of Christ. What's that going to look like? Uh, what uh, what do the different categories of dispensationalists believe, whether it be classic, revised or progressive? Um, I think it's going to shock a lot of people, uh, even maybe when this comes out. You know, John MacArthur affirms a rebuilt temple, um, millennial sacrifices. Um, so somebody like that, um, you know, holds to a view that, you know, our Reformed forefathers, whether PNR or Baptist, would, would just be appalled by. And I think every preceding generation would as well. So I just want to look at some of the details about, um, you know, where, where dispensationalists kind of go awry from, again, not just exegesis, but even the history of interpretation uh, in light of the millennial reign of Christ, um, and then provide some alternatives to how Revelation 20 has been interpreted throughout church history. And then part nine is going to look at um, really just some pastoral uh, words. Again, I'm 25. I'm not the final authority on all things pastoral, on all things pastoral and all things uh, related to exercising wisdom. I understand that. Um, but really, I just want to meet the reader where they're at and just give them some things to think about and let them know too that even if you're wrestling with dispensationalism um, and if you never even change your mind, uh, these are just important questions and, and issues that you need to work with and that I as a adherent to covenant theology need to work with. And um, we need to be willing to not talk past brothers and sisters who hold a different views. We need to have um, deep and challenging conversations in love and grace and with respect but we need to have those conversations and not just deal with strawmen that have been uh, levied throughout, um, you know, the last, uh, really the last century ever since dispensationalism got popular in, uh, in America. So um, that's, that's an overview. That's a long overview of um, our series that I'm going to be uh, hopefully a, an article every six weeks um, would be my goal for this. And oh, I'd love to get them out sooner, but definitely an article every six weeks. And uh just look forward to seeing how the Lord uses this series. Amen. And one of those articles you mentioned, as well as the one of the distinctives of dispensationalism listed by, by Vlock, has to do with the relationship between Israel and the church. And you already alluded that there is some difference of opinion between different schools. So could you to, to answer the first part of this question, can you just say or flesh out what those differing views are? How, how do dispensationalists view the relationship between Israel and the church? Yeah, um, I think at this point uh, in, 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 in preparation for this conversation, um, I think that I think it would be safe to say um, that all dispensationalists, whether the extreme degree of the classical variety or the less extreme degree of the progressive variety, all dispensationalists do see a rigid distinction between Israel and the church. So it, Israel is not to be regarded for whether you're extremely, you know, classic dispensationalist or progressive dispensationalist. Israel is not to be regarded as a type of the church 
or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ in any sense. Um, the other big thing regarding that Israel and the church relationship for any brand of dispensationalism, whether extreme or not, not so extreme, is that the church age is a parenthesis in God's plan to ultimately fulfill any prophecies and promises that he made to the nation of Israel, particularly in the Old Testament. Um, we, when, when, you, when you come to the Bible as a dispensationalist, the, the hermeneutical key, if you will, uh, the key to rightly understanding redemptive history and to rightly understanding uh, where redemptive history is heading is to understand the role that national Israel has in those plans. Um, God's dealings with the nation of Israel is at the center of God's redemptive historical plans and purposes and is at the center of biblical eschatology for the dispensationalists. Um, that's, a, that's very important to understand if you're going to understand um, any of those three varieties of dispensationalism. Israel is fundamentally distinct from the church, and it is, it is at the center, the nation of Israel is at the center of God's redemptive historical purposes. Uh, many dispensationalists might scoff at that. They might push back against that, but the hermeneutic reveals that. Um, the hermeneutic of a dispensationalist insists that if a prophecy or a promise was made to the nation of Israel, then it must be fulfilled literally to the nation of Israel. In other words, whether you're a classical dispensationalist or progressive dispensationalist, there's never a sense or an occasion in which a promise is made by God to the nation of Israel that can have direct fulfillment in the church or the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Um, in fact, for many dispensationalists, the church is not prophesied or alluded to in any explicit sense in the Old Testament record. Um, why do they come to these conclusions? How do they come to these conclusions? They come to these conclusions because they refuse to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament or to acknowledge typological references in the Old Testament if they're not explicitly labeled as types in the New Testament. Um, there, there's a lot of problems that that poses. Um, you know, it was, I don't know how many months ago it was, but it was, it was within the last year. There was an article written uh, in the Master Seminary Journal. Um, I don't know if you'll have show notes or not, but, uh, and, and I can send you all this, but it, just the view that was posited in a, in a journal like that uh, led to people believing that, you know, there's maybe two new covenants in the future, that the covenant, the new covenant promise, Jeremiah 31, was only made to the nation of Israel. And there were all kinds of confusion in light of that article. Um, but we, we see in dispensationalism, even in, a, in an institution that uh, is kind of the, the, the stalwart or the, the highest level of uh, Christian academia in that realm of dispensationalism, you have some very just bizarre views on the relationship between Israel and the church. Um, some more things that I could point out uh, to your question, Jimmy. Uh, you know, before the 19th century uh, advent or implementation of dispensationalism theology, um, there has been two predominant approaches to understanding the relationship between Israel and the church. And I want to get into that in contrast to some of those things I just shared about dispensationalism. Uh, the first approach, of course, finds its roots in Presbyterianism, uh, but it was also held by several church fathers and Reformed theologians. I know Dr. Keith Matheson in his book, Rightly Dividing the People of God, points this out, um, that um, in this view, and our Presbyterian brothers today hold to this view, 
there is no real distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, the church has always existed from the Garden of Eden and will continue to exist until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, this view would affirm that the church was predominantly Jewish during the Old Testament, and as a result, it was largely comprised of the nation of Israel until the years following the ascension of Jesus Christ, when the church really expanded into Gentile nations. Um, how did they get to this view? Well, as, as you all know, and as I'm sure you all discussed with several of your previous guests on this podcast, um, the PNR view comes from a distinct version of covenant theology um, that sees one covenant of grace administered in various ways throughout the totality of redemptive history. Um, so according to this view, and, and the necessary consequence of this view, is that Old Covenant Israel was a unique administration of the covenant of grace, the one covenant of grace, in which the church was fully present. And as always, the church remained at the center of God's redemptive historical purposes. So for the PNR adherent, um, it's not Israel at the center of God's eschatological and redemptive historical purposes and plans. It's the church. Um, it's God's elect. Uh, but of course, as y'all hold to, as 1689 Federalists, the second predominant approach to addressing the relationship between Israel and the church um, is to make some type of distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, we make a distinction as seeing them as two visible institutions in which God's singular elect people has historically resided. Um, uh, I don't want to speak for you gentlemen, but uh, just in my understanding of 69 federalism and my own particular views, proponents of this view um, would see Israel as a type of the church and as a type of Jesus Christ. Um, let me flesh that out a little bit for the listener. Uh, when seeing Israel as a type of Christ, proponents of this view, particularly based on my understanding, most of these uh, advocates would be in the 1689 Federalist camp. Proponents of this view would look at a passage like Matthew 2.15, and based on its use of Hosea 11.1, 1, they would come to the conclusion that Israel, as God's disobedient son, was typological of God's true and obedient son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come to give himself up as a ransom for Jew and Gentile. Um, and again, Jew and Gentile, uh, elect Jew and Gentile as the, the true people of God. Uh, Galatians 3, 26 through 29, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and Colossians 3, 10 and 11. Some of the passages out of many we could use to show there is one people of God. There's not a rigid distinction. Israel was a type of Christ uh, in light of God's progressive uh, revelation purposes that he's carried out in redemptive history. Um, so in keeping with that logic, Jesus Christ is the true Israel and those who are members of his body are true Israelites by faith alone. Uh, as such, all of Christ's people are members of the true Israel and possess an eternal home in his eschatological kingdom. Um, I think Hebrews 11, 8 through 16 is a powerful text we can use to justify that. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews had a great understanding of, of God's progressive, uh, redemptive historical purposes that he has revealed in Scripture. And I'm going to flesh that out, Lord willing, in future blogs. Um, but lastly, regarding how... Uh, Israel is a type of the church. Israel is a type of Christ. Israel is a type of the church. Let me let me flesh that idea out. Um, Israel was a temporal nation comprised primarily of those who were the physical descendants of Abraham. It was shaped by a law written on tablets of stone, and membership in Israel could be obtained through external circumcision. As such, Old Covenant Israel was a mixed people made up of those who are regenerate and unregenerate. 
Um, let's compare that to the realities in the New Covenant Church. You know, many dispensations say you're pulling at straws. You know, you're you're, you're reading things into the to the texts that aren't there. I mean, I, I don't see how that argument can be made. I mean, the the, the typological anti-typological uh, connection is there. The New Covenant Church is an eternal nation comprised of those who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, descendants who make up every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the church, the New Covenant, the New Covenant Church covenant of grace per 69 federalism god's law is written on the hearts of every member thereof because the only true members of the new covenant church are regenerate believers in the new covenant baptism has replaced circumcision as the external sign of covenant membership but baptism signifies something far greater than circumcision ever did in the old covenant because in baptism members of the new covenant celebrate a symbolic representation of what is supposed to be true of the person who is being baptized, namely that they are identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by virtue of being born again. And of course, as you guys know, in the Old Covenant, circumcision and membership in the nation of Israel was not necessarily evidence of whether or not one was converted, because the intended meaning of the of the covenant sign of the Old Covenant was not conversion. Uh, it, was a, it was a sign of covenant identification, namely identification with the nation of Israel, uh, baptism is identification of, of union and, and identification with Christ. So um, just as a Baptist and in keeping with my understanding of covenant theology, I would see the new covenant as being qualitatively better than the old covenant. Um, and then Hebrews 8, 6 through 13 would be a proof text I would go to to show this inciting Jeremiah's prophecy, um, you know, in Jeremiah 31. So um you know, there's a there's actually I'll, I'll wrap it up by saying this. Um, I don't know if you all seen the table, but it shows it shows the church in one column and Israel in another column. And it just shows the parallels, the type anti type um, parallels there. I think Brandon Adams put it together. Uh, it was really helpful for me in, in fleshing out some of these, um, you know, some of these typological connections that, again, many dispensationalists would say. It's not explicitly mentioned in scripture. You're reading something in that's not there. But I mean, for at least for me, it's so clear uh, and, and the connection is so uh, evident that I don't think it's arbitrary to to claim that that it is a type and an anti-type fulfillment. Um, so just to tie it up uh, personally, me, I see I do see a distinction between Israel and the church, but it's not a distinction that resembles dispensationalism in any way, shape or form, because I see the new covenant church as the goal, as the telos to which Old Covenant Israel was intended to foreshadow. And I see Jesus Christ as the greater and more obedient son than Israel was during its redemptive historical functioning in the Old Covenant. So that would be uh, just, again, a lot for the listener to sift through, but um, that would be how I would understand um, the covenant theological alternatives to dispensationalism and some of the main points that dispensationalists would like to make in light of their theology. Yeah, uh, one of our previous uh interviewers i think i don't want to say it right off the, my cuff but uh a dispensationalist would say that the view that you lastly presented would be called replacement theology and and to that response um the interviewee said no i don't believe that the church replaces israel i believe that the church is the fulfillment of israel Amen. Yeah. Um, let's go ahead and move this uh, conversation on. Uh, looking at 
For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.